One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Celia Hatton. We begin with a tale of two cities. In central Beijing this week, elaborate dress rehearsals involving tanks and missiles have shut down large parts of the Chinese capital as the city prepares to host its biggest ever military parade to mark the 70th anniversary of the founding of the communist state. But in our second city, about 2,000 kilometers south in the territory of Hong Kong, the mood is that of defiance. An elaborate fireworks show planned to mark the anniversary in Hong Kong has been cancelled in view of the latest situation, was the delicately worded explanation. This is the new normal from there. Three months ago, protesters began to turn out in large numbers to voice opposition to a bill that would have allowed extradition to mainland China, breaking down what many regard as a sacred firewall between Hong Kong and Beijing. The Hong Kong authorities shelved the bill, but for weeks they wouldn't completely withdraw it. That led to mass peaceful protests with as many as two million people taking part, a huge feat in a place with a population of around seven million. But those protests are becoming increasingly violent, as our correspondent Stephen McDonald explains. You can see the kind of chaotic nature of this protest movement as these pro-democracy demonstrators retreat. They're coming backwards now as the right police move forward. There's no clear idea of where they're going to go. Just like their demands are quite general in terms of freedom and democracy. And we can see now that tear gas is being used to disperse this crowd. And it's what we've now come to expect from Hong Kong every weekend. Protesters have already called for mass demonstrations on October 1st in hopes of detracting from Beijing's big moment and calling for attention to their plight. As we head towards potential clashes on that day, it's a good time to ask, what's China going to do about Hong Kong? Well, I'm joined now by three guests in our BBC studio in Hong Kong. Anthony Daprian is a Hong Kong-based lawyer and author of City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. Claudia Mo, member of Hong Kong's Legislative Council, she sits under the Hong Kong First banner that describes its purpose as defend the city's culture from mainlandization. And Andrew K.P. Leung, China commentator and former Hong Kong government official. So welcome. Let's start by asking one question of each one of you. Has the relationship between Hong Kong and China reached a turning point? Claudia? Well, it definitely has, because uh, the young at the moment in our city is uh, fighting uh, their last fight 
they think、uh, this is their last battle, and、uh, it's for their future, for their home, for their city. And what's unique about this、uh, particular campaign or movement is that they're joined by、uh, many Hong Kongers who used to be a conservative type that they would only endorse. Peaceful rallies and so on and so forth. Now the radicals and the、uh, conservatives have joined forces. Andrew, what do you think? Has the relationship reached a turning point? Well, I can speak from some personal experience because at the time of the handover in 1997, I was the top civilian in the former Royal Hong Kong Police Force, and shortly before the handover. There used to be football games being played between the police in Hong Kong and the police in either Shenzhen or Guangzhou, and all it took was a telephone call for these football games to be played either on Hong Kong side or on the side across the border. But then, immediately after the handover, this kind of exchanges had to be referred upwards to Beijing for approval because Beijing really wanted to bend backwards to make sure that the so-called river water. Doesn't mix、uh, with the well water in Hong Kong, but then over the years, this is no longer possible because of the free flow of capital,、um, goods, services, and tourists' ideas. So the two places are increasingly intermeshed. And now, after all these years, a lot of people in Hong Kong see or feel that somehow one country, two system is. Tilting towards the one country rather than the two systems, and then now they have taken to the streets. The young people in Hong Kong, they're seeing the future is now. They can't get on the housing ladder. They see the society is、uh, changing. The、okay. whole thing has been ignited in the prairie fire of resistance. Okay, so we have Claudia referring to a final battle. Andrew referring to a prairie fire revolution. Anthony, what do you think? Has the relationship between Hong Kong and Beijing? Has it reached a key turning point? I think I have to agree with Claudia and Andrew that it, it certainly has.、Um, I might not use the same apocalyptic imagery, but I think the image that really strikes me—and again, we're talking about the, the younger generation, primarily in Hong Kong—is、uh, you played a, a clip earlier on of this song, "Glory to Hong Kong," that's been recently composed by a local composer with, with lyrics reflecting some developments in the movement and sort of this spirit of being Hong Kongers. And many of the young Hong Kong activist generation are referring to it as, as Hong Kong's. Anthem or Hong Kong's national anthem, and when you are out in a crowd of these young people and they sing that song, and I've seen them standing,、uh, placing their hand on their hearts and singing with a, a fervor and a solemnity this song that you never see them singing the Chinese national anthem, and indeed even with Beijing threatening criminal consequences for for not singing the national anthem with the appropriate degree of solemnity, they are still not heeded. It really is a very striking symbol of the way this younger generation. Feel about their identity as Hong Kongers, distinct from the rest of China. All three of you have mentioned young people in Hong Kong, so so let's hear from one of those people now. A short time ago, I spoke to an activist who wants us to call him Jimmy. I was arrested some time ago, along with some thirty people. I wasn't at the front lines. I was just passing by, walking down the road near a lawful assembly. By no, by lawful, I mean. The assembly was grounded with a letter of no objection, and the letter of no objection is a legal document issued by the Hong Kong police to allow the civilians of Hong Kong to go on the street to protest. And then two group of riot police surrounded me and the other thirty people with me. 
they told us to remove our mask, but we didn't. Imagine someone snaps you and ripped off the mask from your face. That's what they did to us, every one of us. And this girl in front of me, she got through to the ground, violently. Jimmy, what keeps you going back to protest time after time? Simple democracy. This is what we're after. This is what we honkies are after because we feel that our freedoms, our democracy, they're being taken away bit by bit. So we have to defend our freedom, our democracy, our rights, our human rights. Is it fair to characterize it as a David and Goliath battle? Are you the Davids? I, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so because we honkies, we are all in this together. So. I don't think we should categorize anyone as anything. I still don't know which direction would this movement go. It is too fake, and I'm afraid to say we must succeed. We will just have to see how this goes on. Do you think that the focus of the protest movement has really moved from the Hong Kong authorities northwards to Beijing? In the movement. It has always been the five demands to fully withdraw the extradition bill, to withdraw the characteristics of of rioting in the previous protest, to cancel all the charges, all the prosecutions against all the arrested, and fourth, to set up an independent investigation unit to investigate not only the police but also everyone in Hong Kong. Including the civilians and the police. And five, we want the universal suffrage. We want to elect our own chief executive and not appointed by the Chinese government. Jimmy, can I ask what effect has your participation in this movement? What effect has it had on your personal life, on your family life? So, I used to go out to the protest every time、um, when they have these. A letter of no objections or not, I I would go out to the protest. But now that I'm being prosecuted, to ease the worries from my families, I didn't go out as much. The reason I worried about them because I was arrested and I was beaten up, and they threatened to also beat my family up. They threatened me、um, by saying, "We know where your families live. If you don't cooperate, we will." Go to your home and and beat your families up. So this kind of of wording things make me concerned about the safety of my families. So that was Jimmy. He doesn't show any signs of stepping back from the cause, even though he's facing prosecution. Now, the umbrella protest that we saw in 2015 ended after a few months. What's different about this movement, Anthony Daprin? The fundamental logic or the fundamental strategy differs between the two movements. So the umbrella movement was was an occupation movement inspired by protests such as Occupy Wall Street. The rationale was that if the protesters camped out in in one area for long enough and caused enough disruption, they would force the government to the table to to negotiate. And unfortunately, what happened in the umbrella movement is that the government effectively sat them out and waited them out, and then eventually cleared the protest. So this occupation strategy. 
strategy wasn't a success. So with the current protest movement, the protesters have very much learned the lessons of the umbrella movement and are now adopting a strategy that's been referred to as the be water strategy. So rather than entrenching themselves and occupying one site for an extended period, they have these pop-up protests, sort of guerrilla-style protests, where they will go to a particular place, protest, cause disruption, perhaps close down a government building or another facility, close down the airport, for example. But when the police arrive to confront them, rather than sticking around, they, as I say, be like water and flow away and then move perhaps to another location for another further protest or just disappear into the night at the end of the night. And that style of protest really, as we've seen, can be so much more enduring because it really requires less commitment from people. They're not required to camp out on the street night after night for months on end. All it requires is that on a weekend, people turn up and, and join a protest for a Sunday or for a Saturday and then sort of go about their ordinary lives the rest of the week. And that kind of movement can really sustain, as we've seen for a very long time. Up until about 10 years ago, most Hong Kong people, I would say, were fairly patriotic in the sense that they would still identify with the Beijing government. About 10 years ago, there was this massive earthquake in Sichuan and in Dang in Hong Kong. We were gathering uh, huge sums of donations and most Hong Kong people would feel this uh, blood thicker than water. But then uh, subsequently, it's mainly things happening on the political front, the way they managed to uh, sentence one of our top young activists by the name of Edward Leung Mm. to six years for rioting. And uh, the young uh, suddenly woke up after the umbrella movement uh, when we said uh, we will be back. And now we are back. We are seeking uh, justice and what have you. You would say, oh, well, well, it all started uh, with this anti-China extradition bill business. Why has it now become uh, a thing about uh, fighting for democracy and things? But you you can tell Kerry Lam, as uh, Jimmy was saying, was selected and anointed by Beijing. She counted her votes at the local legislature. She's got more than enough for the passage of that uh, controversial bill. That's why she was quite so arrogant, so uh, negligent on her part uh, that she failed completely to listen to Hong Kong people. And now the young are fighting back. Andrew, do you think that Carrie Lam really ignited these protests? Is she really the one to blame because she tried to push through a very unpopular extradition bill? Would, would protesters be on the streets if that bill had been removed very, very quickly? Uh, this movement, really what they're asking for is really to change the whole fabric of one country, two systems. If you look at universal suffrage, don't forget the package of universal suffrage at the time of the umbrella movement was rejected for not being democratic enough. But what the protesters are asking for is no less than unfettered as election of the chief executive without the safeguards prescribed in the basic law. Now, of course, Hong Kong is not a country. And then um, one country, two system is a paradox. But these are the safeguards prescribed in Hong Kong's constitution. And what the protest is asking for is to scrap those safeguards so that they can select someone. And for Beijing, the worry is that if these safeguards are removed, then someone can be elected who can 
gradually push Hong Kong towards independence or self-determination. So and herein lies the paradox. I, I, think, I don't know if that's quite right, Andrew. I mean, I don't think there are any safeguards on universal suffrage in the basic law as such. All the basic law says is that the See. chief executive shall be – the ultimate aim is that the chief executive should be chosen by universal suffrage. And well, can I – what, what are the limits on that? Well, I mean, if you look at the basic law, there is, of course, the Article 45, I think, says that, okay, mm. well, it's uh, universal suffrage, mm. that's what it's all about. But then another article prescribes the, now, uh, the uh, business uh, sector, I, I the professionals pardon, and so forth. Andrew, uh, right. never mind the nitty-gritty bits about election committee, what have you. The basic law or whatever document give uh, Beijing the right to screen out unsuitable, in Beijing's eyes, election candidates in Hong Kong. That's what Beijing's trying to do. And that's what our young are fighting against. But if we go back to the words of our young protester, he gave a very simple answer about why he's so engaged with the movement. He wants democracy, he says. He didn't mention the basic law. He didn't mention direct elections. He said he wants democracy. But I wonder if it's that simple. Are the demands really rooted in politics or is there a socioeconomic discontent behind much of this? You know, many in Hong Kong and those watching events in Beijing are focusing on the economic problems experienced by young people there. They point to the relatively huge amount of low-cost housing that's been built in Singapore, for example, another financial hub in the region, in comparison to the rising hub of so-called coffin homes in Hong Kong. Is that part of the problem here? No, I wouldn't underplay the housing problem in Hong Kong. We're such a compact society and we always lack space, it seems. But the thing is, this whole issue is deeply rooted in politics. And uh, the young talking about democracy, yes, they basically mean uh, one man, one vote. And Beijing turns around to say, oh, okay, one man, one vote, fine. We will screen out or rather screen in uh, suitable candidates for you guys to uh, conduct one man, one vote. And that's not what uh, truly democratic election is about. And that's uh, the sort of unfettered election the young really want. And I want to go back to those violent elements, uh, allegations. The fact that the Hong Kong police have also admitted that they have sent in undercover officers disguising as protesters. And so uh, we now need to ask who were or who are rather, the arsonists, who are the vandalists in Hong Kong. Uh, can I come in on this, please? Certainly, there is a, um, a use of force or violence even on both sides. But if you look at the kind of acts of vandalism and what can really be defined as riots in many other countries, I mean, even President Trump used the word riots to describe some of these acts. But if you, these acts uh, take place in Western capitals, Western cities, you know, how would the, the police respond? I mean, one has got to put this in context. And of course, in the melee, in the scuffle, all sorts of acts that you know take place on both sides. Yep. Let's focus in this discussion a little bit more on on what's fueling these protests. We've looked at the political demands, but would a change in the economic prospects for young people in Hong Kong help to bring down tensions in the, in the territory? Anthony, what do you think? 
I think certainly there have been issues with things like housing affordability, like wage stagnation, a sense among the younger generation perhaps that their opportunities are limited here. But look, that, that seems to me to be an overly convenient explanation. And I think in, in Beijing's eyes, it would be wonderful, you know, were it so that all they had to do was construct a bit of affordable housing and everyone would be happy. But when they're marching on the streets, they're not marching demanding cheap housing. They're marching demanding democracy, as you heard the protester that you interviewed say. I think I think what's been interesting about this protest movement is that it began, obviously, sparked by the protest against the proposed extradition bill. But what was that really about? I think it was about Hong Kong identity. It was about Hong Kongers seeing the core rights and freedoms that they enjoy and that they see as being what, what everyone here refers to as Hong Kong core values, the things that distinguishes Hong Kong not only from the rest of China but much of the rest of Asia. And they saw the extradition bill as something that impinged upon that. And as they have done in the past, whether it was in relation to the national education curriculum or the Article 23 anti-sedition legislation, they came out and, and protested against it. So it's about a curtailment of rights and freedoms that they see as being fundamental to the identity of what it means to be a Hong Konger. And that's why, you know, Notwithstanding the extradition bill now being said to be proposed to be withdrawn, there are broader concerns about rights and freedoms and the accountability of government and the accountability of the police and, and getting back to that fundamental great unresolved question from the umbrella movement of, of universal suffrage. And I think that's really what it's all about, notwithstanding, you know, indeed there are other socioeconomic issues that we consider, but that's only, only part of the picture and not the fundamental part, I would think. Yeah, and we should mention as well, though, that there is a bit of a ticking clock behind all of this, that in 20 years, the arrangement that was in place when Hong Kong was handed back to China is going to end at that time. And we're not clear really what's going to happen when the official time period of one country, two systems might end. Anthony, you mentioned as well, these concerns about the deterioration of the Hong Kong identity and the fact that Hong Kong is increasingly contending with large numbers of people from mainland China. You know, we can't ignore the fact that there is a rising anti-mainland sentiment in Hong Kong. How does that play into these protests? Claudia? Now, uh, we have been going against uh, what we call mainlandization of Hong Kong. And uh, essentially, we're uh, talking about uh, all these characteristics ranging from uh, faking news, uh, faking products, to uh, uh, rampant corruption and abuse of power. Everything that sort comes under the uh, mainland Chinese uh, the label, I'm afraid. And we've been trying very hard to retain uh, what we have uh, managed to retain since 1997, when uh, British colony was handed over to a Chinese sovereignty. But the thing is, these days, the government officials, Kerry Lam in particular, actually would uh, reminding the young that, okay, if you, you somehow don't like Hong Kong, you lack uh, job prospects, and uh, you can't buy a flat, okay, Go up to the Greater Bay Area. You've got loads of opportunities up there. And that annoy our young just even more. She's been fueling the fire like this. And uh, I just don't know what she's uh, thinking with our young. But she has completely abandoned one whole generation. That She has lost all trust and all confidence amongst the young.
And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at the protests in Hong Kong. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. Let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, asking what's next for Hong Kong and my guests. We're joined by Anthony Daprian. He's a Hong Kong-based lawyer and author of City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. Claudia Mo is a member of Hong Kong's Legislative Council. She sits under the Hong Kong First banner that describes its purpose as defend the city's culture from mainlandization. And Andrew K.P. Leung, China commentator and former Hong Kong official. Well, earlier in the program, we've discussed some of the underlying factors behind the protest. Coming up, we'll discuss Beijing's options. For now, Hong Kong appears to be trying new methods to show it's listening to the people. As we speak, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, is holding the first of her series of dialogues to find solutions. This is what she said. I hope there is no doubt by now that after three months of social unrest, after formal withdrawal of the bill, which apparently has set off this social unrest, people now realize that it is not just about the bill. Of course, I understand some of these problems about housing, about land shortage, less diversity, less inclusiveness in our economy and so on. But since we are going into a new style of governance that is more open and uh, more people-oriented, I think this sort of dialogue will be very helpful. And I can assure you that this is not a sort of one-off gimmick type of uh, function. It is intended to be uh, organized on a very sustainable and perhaps long-term basis. One 17-year-old was quoted in a news story saying she thought the dialogue simply came too late. Claudia, what do you think? Definitely too little too late. Carrie Lam's so-called new-style governance, I mean, really, that's such a joke. I mean, she said doing cage politics as usual, sort of if you have a a roof to live under and you have food to be fed, then you should be just as happy, even though you're just living in a cage. She cannot act. She has become a political nightmare, Carrie Lam. Andrew? Well, I think, first of all, a lot of people are really quite fed up with the chief executive. And then, of course, uh, from Carrie Lam's point of view, she's now taking the first step. And then she's um, trying to provide a platform for people to let off steam. And that's what she said. I mean, I don't want being scolded and people get angry with me and that kind of thing. But that's the first step. Just in relation to Carrie Lam's dialogue, quite a few people have fairly wryly observed the last time Carrie Lam had a public dialogue 
dialogue, which was during the Umbrella Movement. She led a government delegation meeting with five student representatives. Four of those five ended up in jail. So that didn't bode particularly well for people who have dialogue with Carrie Lam. But I think there are a couple of comments that came out of tonight's dialogue that I found really striking. These were questions that were addressed to Carrie Lam by the audience. The first one that really struck me was one of the audience members said words to the effect of, you've given us each a three-minute limit to, to ask you a question or to make a point. You have closed-door dialogues with the rich and powerful all the time, with the tycoons, with the pro-Beijing politicians. You don't give them a three-minute time limit. You always listen to them and, and listen to what they have to say. Why don't you listen to us? The, the second thing that really struck me was that they said to her, you know, we've seen you coming out into the community and visiting damaged MTR ticket machines and turnstiles, yet not once have you come out and visited protesters in hospitals or come out and met and spoken with the protesters on the streets. So how can we take your statement that you want to take dialogue seriously when we don't see you acting that way you know, the rest of the time? I think that that was you know, particularly striking. So if a Carrie Lam-style dialogue isn't going to work, how does Beijing engage with protesters on the streets? They just won't. Well, why should they bother? It's an authoritarian regime, as uh, the Andrew Leung was saying, the Beijing governance of Hong Kong just now. I mean, Beijing's not supposed to govern Hong Kong. We're supposed to be under one country, two systems, but now it's 1.1 systems. Anthony, let's go to you. How does Beijing contend with this kind of leaderless movement? I think you're quite right that Beijing has very limited options here. Um, They clearly have no intention of engaging in any kind of violent crackdown at this stage. And and I think everyone recognises that this would have a catastrophic impact on not only, you know, obviously the the people of Hong Kong, but Hong Kong's international reputation, Hong Kong's economy, uh, potentially the economy of the rest of China and the reputation, of course, of China. So I, I don't think that's a path that anyone is seriously suggesting they're contemplating. They also also have no stomach for negotiation or compromise. I mean, not only do they have no one to negotiate with, as you quite rightly pointed out, uh, but I don't think they have any intention of, of negotiating. Beijing doesn't work that way. So they're sort of left with a strategy of basically waiting it out, playing, as, as Carrie Lam herself has said, the long-term game, and using the various leverages and mechanisms at their disposal to exert their influence over the medium to longer term, such as pressure on businesses, as we've seen them exerting on, for example, Cathay Pacific, very high-profile case in recent months, through their use of so-called United Front organizations at the social and cultural level throughout Hong Kong, through their influence in elections, not only the District Council and Legislative Council elections, but professional body elections, such as the Law Society Council elections, and gradually using these various influence levers over time to hope to sort of change public opinion in Hong Kong in their favor. Yeah, and one popular line, the popular line from Beijing is, blame the foreigners. If you can't uh, cope with your domestic problems, you tell the foreigners to just keep off. Beijing simply wouldn't want to send in uh, the Chinese army into Hong Kong. How could they conduct a military crackdown on a uh, civilian unrest? They can't explain to the rest of the world. So they can't do that. What do they do? They use the local police force. They use the police force as some sort of proxy for the uh, army. And that explains all these police brutality stories. I mean, they want to 
beat up our protesters or arrest them and finally just wait you out. That's uh, the scheme of things so, at the moment. So as you've said, Beijing hasn't made many obvious concessions. Anthony, you mentioned that Beijing doesn't have many options. Anthony, how would you say Beijing's view on Hong Kong has changed over the past 20 years? I think there is, of course, a certain school of thought that says that given Hong Kong's declining economic importance to the rest of China, its share of GDP, to put it in very blunt terms, that, that does that mean that therefore Hong Kong is, is sort of less important to Beijing than it had been, say, 20 years ago? I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Hong Kong still has an important role to play for Beijing and for the rest of China, which is why they are concerned to try and keep it in its present form. Hong Kong is still a vital place for, for mainland Chinese companies, both state-owned and private privately owned, to base their international business operations, to raise capital on international capital markets, to engage in international transactions. It's a place for Chinese elites to store their money, to buy real estate, to get Hong Kong passports, which makes it easier for them to travel, perhaps to school their children or to base their families. And so it's it's a place that is still very important as the gateway out of China for the Chinese elites and Chinese companies. As we talk about Hong Kong and its relationship with mainland China, we can't ignore the ongoing political tensions between Beijing and another neighbour, the island of Taiwan. You might remember that when the communists overthrew the then Chinese government in 1949, those officials and their loyalists fled to Taiwan. Beijing considers Taiwan to be a part of its territory, and the island is self-ruled. Many there want formal independence from China. So what happens in Hong Kong now could have a big impact on future relations between Beijing and Taipei. I spoke to Fei Fan Lin. He was the face of student protests in Taiwan in 2014, the so-called sunflower movement that spoke out against a cozy trade deal with mainland China. He's now one of the leaders within the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan. Watching the protests in Hong Kong, I asked him what memories this movement triggers for him. We are closely monitoring the Hong Kong situation for many years. We have a very good relationship with the civil society, especially the activists from Hong Kong. I think it's five years or, or, or longer that the student movement leaders have a very deep relationship among two different societies. For me personally, the Hong Kong's protest brings me to think about the one country, two system will not work in Hong Kong anymore. And that would probably have another implication for Taiwan as well, especially when Beijing announced that they're kind of pursuing another kind of one country to system model to put on Taiwan. For us, it's quite clear that we, the Taiwanese people, will not accept the one country to system. And I believe that in Hong Kong, many people also have been aware of the one country system is no longer working. There were people who thought, well, maybe the, the mm-hmm. people of Taiwan will see the success of, you know, if, if one country, two systems is possible, and it might convince mm-hmm. them to move closer to the idea of unification with mainland China. But you're mm-hmm. saying that system, if it did work in the past, it, it isn't working now. What made you come to that realization? I think since 2014, that when the umbrella movement happened in Hong Kong, that we have been aware of that. When the Hong Kongers trying to gain democracy or uh, through this kind of protest or demonstration, but it's quite clear that the whole government institution or the whole political system in Hong Kong is not 
able to process or not able to accept any voice from the Hong Kongers. We believe that a democratic action in Hong Kong cannot be proceeded to another stage to help the Hong Kongers to gain the true democracy when the Beijing has a very strong will and the Hong Kong government has a very strong opinion on how to govern. You say that Taiwan won't accept such a deal. But in the long term, stretching forward into the future, we have mainland Mm -hmm. China, which is moving towards having the biggest economy in the world, the world's largest population. It is a global giant. Mm -hmm. In comparison, Mm -hmm. Taiwan and Hong Kong are tiny. Is it possible to continue Mm -hmm. to resist the the economic pull and therefore the political sway posed Mm -hmm. by Beijing Mm -hmm. as as we move decades into the future? We're continuing saying that, well, Taiwan is a small place. Hong Kong is also a small place. But if you look at Taiwan's history, Taiwan is always have a very good relationship with other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. But it so, doesn't have formal uh, diplomatic ties. So, so what yeah, do you mean yeah, by... But, but, but the, but the economy, economy relations is actually quite good. And when, when you look at Taiwan's trading numbers, those figures, that we have a very strong ties in the economy with other countries, with Southeast Asia, and also with Japan, with South Korea, with the United States, and also with a lot of European countries as well. So we, while we are a small country, but we will not put all the eggs in the same uh, basket to the market like China, especially when we know that China's economy in the recent year, it didn't perform very well. And a lot of costs and figures have been shown that the Chinese economy, that many people are doubting that it will not sustain. So it's better for us to keep our economy uh, more independent rather than relying on China. So that's what we are pursuing right now. There's a little bit of optimism from Fei Fan Lin in Taiwan. Andrew K.P. Leung, do you think Beijing is conscious of how it deals with Hong Kong and how that might be watched, perceived in Taiwan? Well, as far as Taiwan is concerned, there was absolutely no mileage at all for unification. There was even before the umbrella movement. I mean, that's already be um, an idea that's dead in the water in the first place. But then this latest movement in Hong Kong, this protest, and another nail in the coffin. But then not only then, um, it is also changing the dynamics, the electoral dynamics in Taiwan, much to China's disadvantage. Because at the beginning, there was a merge in emerging a candidate who is promoting uh, Taiwan's economy and so on and so forth with closer ties, economic ties with the mainland, even with the Greater Bay Area, and he came to visit Hong Kong. But now all his credibility is, is largely lost. And that changed the dynamics in favor of the sitting president, who is known to be less friendly towards the mainland. So it's changing the whole dynamics for China. And of course, the Beijing is not very, very pleased with that outcome, of course. But apart from Taiwan, though, I mean, you mentioned, of course, the uh, another big country, of course, the United States, is now pushing back against a rising China 360 degrees. Indeed, you, you, you bring in the United States. And just this week, U.S. congressional committees pushed forward legislation that protects protesters in Hong Kong. The U.S., extends special trade status to Hong Kong that exempts it from sanctions extended during the U.S.-China trade war. 
But the new law that's supported by both of the main parties in the U.S. will regularly review Hong Kong's human rights situation, and they've threatened to revoke the territory's special status if the situation deteriorates even more. Uh, Claudia Mo, how do you think this changes things in Hong Kong? How does it change things, uh, the relationship between what the Hong Kong protesters are pushing for and what Beijing's options are in return? I'm afraid Beijing will seriously consider tightening its grip even further over Hong Kong and uh, at whatever cost kind of uh, attitude. And that would help uh, the presidential elections in Taiwan next year. Uh, Already my Taiwan friends are saying Hong Kong today, uh, Taiwan tomorrow. But then uh, I'm sure there are learned people in Beijing who would advise the government that as China is now trying to compete for a top place in the international community, you can't just uh, claim you are uh, the number one economic powerhouse and as a result I'm rich, I'm big, I can do anything. You need moral fiber. You need uh, moral kind of persuasion to tell people that you you are at the top there. And so uh, I wish they would uh, use this particular opportunity to deal with Hong Kong in in a more sort of uh, humane way. I'm a journalist by training and uh, before the handover of Hong Kong to China I personally face to face heard Beijing officials promising the press at the time that uh, after 10 years of uh, uh, the handover Hong Kong should enjoy one man one vote kind of uh, uh, general elections uh, they they broke their promises so they should uh, keep up uh, the promise and uh, gradually uh, if not right away consider opening up Hong Kong, uh, China itself needs opening up too anyway. Anthony, how do you see the United States' place in this, in this ongoing battle between Hong Kong and Beijing? Can they, can they well, sort out some kind of solution? Uh, I don't know that they can offer any solution. Um, I think we also need to be careful about not um, mixing up the the causation or sort of misascribing motives here. I don't think it should come as any surprise that the United States and indeed any other Western liberal democracy should naturally be sympathetic towards the protesters and should naturally uh, lend their their moral support to the protesters. Um, they, after all, are sharing the same values. Uh, I think we need to be careful to not then sort of tenuously draw the link of saying, well, just because they're providing moral support, that they are therefore also providing material support and economic support for which there's no evidence. That's the the first point I would make. Uh, The second thing, again, is that I don't think it's any surprise that, you know, given uh, the current situation between the United States and China and the current domestic U.S. political situation, that if opportunities arise, people within the U.S. will will make use of Hong Kong for their own purposes, whether that's for their own domestic political purposes or for the purposes of the ongoing U.S.-China relationship. But again, I don't think it is sound to therefore draw the conclusion that the whole situation in Hong Kong has been concocted by the U.S. for this very purpose. It's very clear on, on the ground that this is an entirely 
organic local protest movement, um, and of course, you know, foreign governments will 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 sort of you know, e- express views of that and, and perhaps make use of that, as indeed the U.S. has uh, with with the Hong Kong Human Rights Act. Um, I should also say that that has been welcomed by the protesters in Hong Kong. I think the the young protester generation here are extremely savvy. Um, extremely aware of the media and make use of the international media to further their their own uh, cause, um, are extremely aware of international attention and international support for their cause, and indeed have actively tried to court uh, the U.S. and tried to you know, encourage this act to be passed because they see it as supporting their cause. Um, they see you know the international attention as being, uh, in a way, uh, something of an insurance policy, that, that Beijing will be less likely to uh, take extreme measures against them while the world is watching, and all every little bit helps in terms of, of sort of supporting their cause, um, you know, from from uh, f- from foreign governments and and foreign organisations and so on. But as I say, I think it's important not to sort of take the unsubstantiated step of therefore sort of you know, flipping the causation around and saying this was all foreign instigated to begin with. When they say there's no there's no evidence for that. Let's close with with one last question for you all. Where do you think relations between Hong Kong, that the protest movement in Hong Kong and uh, the communist leaders in Beijing, where do you think those relations will stand a year from now? Claudia Mo? Oh, I, uh, I'm not sure I want to predict seriously, uh, but uh, if I have to, I would think uh, things will be even worse. But then I once again, I would call on uh, Beijing to have second thoughts about uh, the way they uh, deal with Hong Kong. That Hong Kong's not some, uh, you know, the, the del- uh, young teenager delinquent uh, with too much uh, testosterone problems. Not, not that sort of uh, case. We are a civilized city. Colonialism is wrong, has been proven wrong in human history. But through uh, the British, we did... Hong Hong Kongers did manage to learn about uh, universal values, human rights, rule of law, democracy, what have you. And that's our way of life. And uh, we did come under this uh, one country, two systems and a high degree of autonomy promises. Can we just uh, go back to all those promises and uh, get uh, what we're supposed to get? Some basic uh, things, and uh, instead of just uh, clamming down on Hong Kong as though uh, this city should be pronounced dead, and uh, dear international community, you should all just uh, divert your attention to Shenzhen or uh, China's uh, Greater Bay Area instead. This is just not right. Andrew? KP Leung, where do you think we're going to stand a year from now? Where, where, where's the well, relation I'm going to stand? The, um, as far as Beijing is concerned, I mean, they, they're taking an um, a in-depth look at the situation. Um, and, of course, the, um, uh, the perception that Hong Kong is descending into t- totalitarianism, into a police state, uh, appears to be overhyped, at least uh, from Beijing's point of view. And this is uh, substantiated by a recent um, uh, pronouncement by, by the Fraser Institute, Institute of Canada, um, which upholds Hong Kong's top slot as the world's freest um, economy. Now, you can't be the world's freest economy if the society is not free. 
Um, but of course, there, there are worries, there, there are concerns. And I think that Beijing is concentrating on the kind of deep-seated uh, kind of... Uh, uh, contradictions and, 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 and challenges, especially um, for the younger generation in terms of housing. But of course, I think we're likely to see a complete change uh, in the management uh, of the Hong Kong and Macau uh, office, um, maybe a completely change of, um, a change of guards. Um, one of the reasons is because Beijing is increasingly concerned about the threats uh, to national security. Um, for example, um, one of the worries is that it seems that uh, the protests are pointing their um, uh, the criticisms, their the, um, the targets towards Beijing, um, the kind of utilitarianism um, uh, in, 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 in the regime. And so I, I think that we're, we're seeing a, a possible tightening uh, of the kind of security apparatus uh, as far as the Hong Kong and Macau uh, office management staff are concerned. But overall, um, I agree with the assessment um, that uh, from Beijing's point of view, Hong Kong needs to succeed. And to succeed, Hong Kong needs to be different. Um, it can't be just another Shanghai um, uh, or any other city. And there is a long-term role that Hong Kong can play. But for that to happen, Hong Kong needs, uh, the Beijing needs to trust Hong Kong. And, and of course, Hong Kong people need to trust Beijing as well. And it's the building of the trust on, on both sides uh, that could find a solution uh, to possible um, uh, the, the, the future um, um, uh, approach to universal suffrage. In, in other words, Beijing should, um, but for that to happen, uh, trust mm. needs to be built. Uh, but with mm. this kind of increasing confrontation, um, a great deal of trust is lost. So I'm not too optimistic. In, in a year or two, uh, this is likely to be resolved. Okay. Anthony, last word from you. Where do you think we're going to be a year from now? Well, I see the problem between the Hong Kong protesters and Beijing as being really fundamentally one of communication. They don't know how to speak to each other in a way that is mutually intelligible. Uh, Hong Kongers, in particular young Hong Kongers, are not used to reading the runes that come from Beijing. And we've had a number of state council press conferences, people's daily editorials, which if you read them and understand how to read them and understand them, um, have very clear messages. Not all of them bad for, for Hong Kong and for the Hong Kong protesters' cause, but that message doesn't get through. Beijing think they're communicating to Hong Kong, but that the message isn't being received. And on the other side, likewise, the, the young Hong Kong activists don't know how to communicate to Beijing in a way that their message is likely to be receptive to, to the leaders in Beijing. And so I don't see anything happening in the next 12 months that is going to resolve that fundamental communication disconnect. I fear that we are in something of a new normal for Hong Kong, that the that protests will continue to roll on. We may see times where they quieten down a bit and then an issue will emerge and they'll, they'll, they'll flare up again. We have legislative council elections a year from now in Hong Kong, which will be another flashpoint potentially. I think this is going to be a, an ongoing situation in Hong Kong for some time and I don't think it's going to be resolved in the short term and, and certainly not within a year from now. Okay, well, we'll have to circle back and, and, and examine the new normal, perceived new normal in Hong Kong uh, 12 months from now. Well, that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Anthony Dapperen, Claudia Mo, and Andrew K.P. Leung. If you'd like to listen to the program again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. From me, Celia Hatton, and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.